Listen to the word of God. Revelation 14. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, 
the angel who has, had, who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So reads the Word of God. Fear God and give Him glory. Worship Him who made heaven and earth. That's what we read in verse 7 of this text. So it's a call that we hear in today's passage. Fear God and give Him glory. Worship Him who made heaven and earth. That is actually going to be our final word this morning. I'm going to finish this morning with that passage again. Even though here, as it appears in the passage, it began a message of looming judgment. But even so... It reflects the sole disposition toward life in this world that can remove the fear of God's judgment forever and enable us to enter a state of blessedness and rest, which are also mentioned in this text, filled as it is with judgment. Let me make that statement one more time. This charge, fear God and give Him glory, worship Him who made heaven and earth, reflects the sole disposition, the only disposition toward life in this world that can remove the fear of God's judgment forever and enable us to enter the state of blessedness and rest that this text promises. So it's a pretty important statement. I wouldn't say it's the heart of this text. It's one of the heart and soul charges that we hear in Revelation 14. I think the heart of the text is actually in a different spot, and we'll identify that as we move past it. But I want to tell you from the beginning, that's where we're going to finish, and that's going to be our calling today, to fear God and give Him glory and worship Him who made heaven and earth. So why should this be our takeaway today? Well, let's look and see. Let's move into the text. Just a couple more introductory comments, though, before we get to the outline but talking a bit about Revelation 14 because we're in that section of Revelation that can be really challenging when we just read it on our own and certain things I think that we can comment on here and make it helpful when we're reading it ourselves to recall and to enter into the text and appreciate what's being said. And by the way, hopefully you notice even as we are reading this morning that you are developing an ear for hearing this book, this letter. We talked some weeks ago about it being like an evening of Shakespeare where a few minutes in you redevelop your ear for Shakespeare and you begin enjoying the evening and even hearing the humor and so much more. The same thing happens as you read Apocalyptic. This far in, we should be noticing that as we read it, a little bit more of it sticks and a little bit more appreciation for what's being said is gained and gathered as we move through it. 
Part of that is because of details like this. Here in chapter 14, we see the fourth and fifth and sixth many visions that are part of this closing section of this interlude that surrounds the seventh trumpet. All right? I mentioned last week that between the beginning of chapter 12 and chapter 15, verse 4, as this interlude continues on the heels of the seventh trumpet that was described in the last five verses of chapter 11, so beginning in chapter 12 through chapter 15, there's seven many visions that are part of the interlude. We were calling it an interlude, but we can see the beginning point of each of seven visions. We see the fourth, fifth, and sixth of them right here in chapter 14. You can see the formula beginning in verse 1, and then in verse 6, and then in verse 14. We can see, and then I looked, or then I beheld, then I saw. That's introducing a new section of this seven-part vision that's part of this interlude. And I believe all of this that we see under the seventh trumpet or surrounding the seventh trumpet in this interlude, which really goes all the way from the beginning of chapter 10 to chapter 15, verse 4, that's the interlude section with the seventh trumpet tucked in the middle at the end of chapter 11. I believe that all of this comes together. It's all subsumed under the seventh trumpet, which heralds the return of Christ, as we mentioned at that time. The return of Christ and the culmination of all these extended sequences of conflict between good and evil that are described here in this interlude, between salvation and judgment as we see right here in chapter 14, all of this that's characteristic of the age of the Gentiles or the period of tribulation, the time between the ascension of Jesus and his return. I believe all of this section is subsumed under that seventh trumpet. It's like, it's like the, the fireworks finale, that all of it's happening at once, booming all over the sky. And this section actually continues through the seven bowls that we'll get into, God willing, next week. These continue right on through chapter 17 and 18, these, these sequences of conflict between good and evil. And then in chapter 19, the return of Christ moves back into the spotlight. And so I think we see chapter 11 to chapter 19, almost like an inclusio, that everything in between it and all surrounding the seventh trumpet with this interlude is all just bam, 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 bam. That's the way John is talking about it. That's why it's hard to put it in a time sequence. We're not trying to resist time sequences, but we're trying to recognize how this genre works, and it's as though John is, is, is directing a movie where he can keep flipping from one scene to another to show simultaneous action, and some of it is flashback and so forth. But now I'm really confusing the folks in the booth that are trying to track with me with the uh, slides this morning, so let me just say that we're ready for the first one, all right? Um, all that's announced and accomplished surrounding the seventh trumpet and between the seventh trumpet and the marriage supper of the Lamb in chapter 19, where the return of Christ returns to center stage, steps back into the spotlight, all of this is assembled together like a collage. It's like a collage that includes flashback and reflection and finishing judgment and the like. 
all of it tying off loose ends that are brought to a finish by the return of Christ. So we're reading a chapter after chapter about things that are happening right on top of each other, and yet interspersed with that are sections that reflect all the way back to the beginning. So it's not as though in the time sequence we're jumping back to the beginning. It's just reflection that's going on upon the return of Christ. It's like our whole life is flashing before our eyes. The life of the church is flashing before its eyes as the seventh trumpet sounds and Christ rides forth from heaven on a white horse. What a picture. So that's what I think is going on in this section. So as we go Sunday after Sunday and chapter after chapter, it can be hard to put that into a picture. We'll just think of it as the fireworks finale, I guess. That might be the, the best way to think of it. Or think of it as our life flashing before our eyes. Let's look at the three parts now of this chapter and just see what chapter 14 adds to this picture. You can see the outline will follow there. First of all, the offering of worship in verses 1 through 5, then the omen of warning in verses 6 through 13, and finally the outpouring of wrath in, chapters, or in verses 14 through 20. The offering of worship, verse 1, then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Remember, we just heard about the mark of the beast. If this were being read to the seven churches or in their gatherings, they've heard about the mark of the beast, they've heard about the number of the name, and the very next words of the letter are, Then I beheld on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him, 144,000, a number of complete, perfect perfection who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Here's the group that you're a part of, church. Here's the group that you want to be a part of if you're not part of the church. This reminds us not only of the 144,000 back in chapter 7 that we met previously there, but it also reminds us of a promise that even goes a, a couple chapters back farther than that. The church in Philadelphia to whom Jesus said in chapter 3, verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. You can have names written all over you. Jesus is saying to Philadelphia. If we recognize that's the, the image for understanding that is not graffiti. The image for understanding that is utter and undeniable, unavoidable, unswerving protection. You are mine, Jesus says. And we can remember his words from the Gospel of John, no one will pluck you out of my hands. That's what the church at Philadelphia heard. That's what we heard again in chapter 5 with and that's what we hear here in chapter 14. I'm sorry, chapter 7 and then chapter 14. But you know what? It's more than just a name on their forehead that is being identified there and here, I believe. Mount Zion is the name of the city of our God. 
I think Jesus was referring to that when he talked to Philadelphia. Now it's coming back here in chapter 14. Mount Zion. They're standing on Mount Zion. In Scripture, this is the city of our God. And being on Mount Zion could mean, and I think it does mean here, that this gathering John is seeing is actually in the new Jerusalem. This is now in heaven. When we first saw the Lamb and when we've seen Him each time, He's been in heaven. When we saw these 144,000 before, they were on earth in chapter 7. But it appears as though now they may be in the new Jerusalem. Mount Zion, wrote one commentator, is used of God's dwelling in the temple and as a term for the people of God. But it most commonly refers to the city that God will establish and rule over at the end of the age. Mount Zion is talking about heaven. It's talking about the presence of God where He is the temple. Another commentator added, this vision is not actually realized until chapters 20 through 22. But as he often does, John gives his readers anticipatory visions of what is yet to be to steady them for the hard experiences that lie immediately ahead for them. So this image, as chapter 14 opens, is intended to strengthen the church. And it appears best to recognize these 144,000 as having arrived in heaven, coming out of the great tribulation as the second multitude back in chapter 7 was described as being. That this 144,000 have now joined the Lamb in the presence of God and in heaven. And as we noted back then, when we first looked at this 144,000, as we're covering chapter 7, we get through all of this turmoil to the second coming of Christ, and not one of them is missing. The 144,000 that were sealed in that description are present with the Lamb in this one. And even though verses 4 and 5 here in chapter 14 might make it sound like this group is a subset of all believers, distinguished perhaps by their sexual purity, by their truthfulness, by their having been the first fruits. It actually seems more likely, I believe, taken together that they represent the full body of Christ, just as we said back in chapter 7, the full body of Christ that was on earth and is now standing fully redeemed with Jesus in heaven. That's what I think we're talking about here. Now, understand, there are differences on each of these interpretations that vary slightly. The overall impact of what we read here is not really in dispute, but exactly how to handle each one of these images is. It's still up for debate. I'm giving you the thing that I believe most appropriately fits the text as we move through it. So as we see the reference, for instance, to their celibacy and their virginity, I believe it's speaking more of spiritual purity than of physical purity. This first description, for instance, is hard to attribute to women. They have not defiled themselves with women. And the second one is hard to attribute to men. They are virgins. That's not usually how men are referred to, even if they are unexperienced sexually. 
So there's descriptions here that suggest that we're talking about something different. But taken together then, put together, I think we see this as the bride of Christ. And the bride of Christ must be chaste, must be made pure. The bride of Christ throughout the New Testament in different notable passages is being prepared in purity to meet her maker. She's being clothed in white, which is the good works that she does. Revelation 19. She's being washed with water through the word. Ephesians 5, that familiar marriage passage. And here I think we see them pure. Surely this can't be elevating celibacy and singleness above marriage and family as somehow more spiritual before God. That runs contrary to the whole theme of Scripture, and that's the backdrop that helps us see that what we're talking about here is a uniquely prepared people. This is the bride of Christ, and the bride of Christ must be chaste. And to this, add to this the fact that all through Scripture, idolatry is labeled as spiritual adultery, using that word, porneia, fornication. That's an image not just of sexual impurity, but of spiritual impurity, of having a divided allegiance before God, of encountering other gods when, when Old Covenant, God is your husband. New Covenant, Christ is your husband. Being unfaithful to Him is called throughout Scripture, spiritual adultery. That's how the prophets referred to it. Even right here in Revelation, on several occasions, John speaks of idolatrous worship of the beast as being porneia, fornication. Chapter 14, right here, verse 8. Chapter 17, 18, 19, that word is used again. So I believe this is talking about spiritual purity. This is a prepared bride ready to be in the presence of the Lamb. These 144,000 are fully and finally pure. And they're devoted to the Lamb. Follow Him wherever He goes. In addition to the reappearance of this 144,000 from chapter 7, the fact that verse 3, they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders... This description folds them in with this same group of the four living creatures and the elders from chapter 5. They were singing a new song at that point. Do you remember? It was after the Lamb had taken the scroll from the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne that we read beginning in verse 8 of chapter 5. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Remember? Verse 9, and they sang a new song. They sang the song of the redeemed, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. That's the song that was being sung in the throne room of God back in chapter 5. Now, now here in chapter 14, the full number of the redeemed have joined in that new song or at least surely one that's very much like it. I tend to believe that this is the same new song, the song of the redeemed. 
But even if it's another new one, they've joined in with the elders and the four living creatures in singing it. It's that reference that makes me think it's one and the same song. They've learned it now, and they are singing praise to the Lamb in the presence of Him who is seated on the throne for the work of salvation that He has done. Harps are present again here, just like they were there. And this time it seems like they're in use. Look at verse 2. I heard the voice from heaven like a roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. You don't only think of that as a loud sound, but that catches the ear. In addition to the thunder and the many waters, there's harp music being played. As one commentator tried to grasp the picture that John is describing here, he said, the voices are so loud that they echo throughout the halls of heaven. This is worship in heaven just spilling out audibly so that John picks up on the worship of these 144,000 together with those beings that are surrounding the very throne of God. These 144,000 are finished. They've finished their course. They've kept the faith. They've endured. We see it right here in verse 3, and here's where I think it locks this in. They have been redeemed from the earth. Now there's great celebration of their salvation and their victory over the beast. That's something we won't see until chapter 15, verse 2, but that's what's being celebrated here. It's their salvation and their victory over the beast. They've won. Moving on to the second paragraph here, verses 6 through 13, the omen of warning. It's D.A. Carson who observed in a series of lectures on the book of Revelation that The Bible is such good news precisely because it's so clear with us on how much bad news there is. That's part of the good news of the Scriptures. That's part of the good news of the Gospel is that there is really bad news out there that we need to understand and appreciate in order to know what we have in the good news. Here we see the bad news even though it begins well. Good verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, again, to the full gamut, to every nation and tribe and language and people. No danger that the gospel is not going to go out to the whole earth. But... This is introducing the bad news. What's happening is this angel is flying overhead proclaiming the eternal gospel to every creature is that this is it. This is it. This is the last chance. This is the gospel going out. And now it's from the voice of heaven. Verse 7, And the angel said with a loud voice, Here's our statement. Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth. 
and the springs of water. This, this, my friends, is the central calling in this whole book. Fear God and give Him glory. Worship Him. It's the central calling of this book. It's the highest calling for all humanity. For every image-bearing creature. From every nation and tribe and language and people. This is our calling. This is the fruit of the eternal gospel. This is the outcome of the eternal gospel. This is the aim of the eternal gospel. It's to turn all of us rebellious, sinful people into ones who fear God and give Him glory and worship Him. So this call from the angel is the proclamation of the eternal gospel. Embrace by faith the only one who can turn you into a worshiper of God. And that's the calling. But that's introducing the hard truths of the gospel. This isn't just the last call to repentance. It's the, direct, it's the declaration of final, personal judgment on the nations and peoples and tribes and languages and it's the proclamation of the final destruction of the idolatrous system of this world. That's what this angel is announcing as the eternal gospel. And this personal final judgment and proclamation of final destruction of godless systems, this is meticulous judgment. It's divinely measured out with perfect and absolute, unlimited understanding of each and every offense that has ever been committed. This is God's judgment falling. Perfect discernment. Penetrating to the level of inner motives, not just outward actions. Knowing precisely how to divvy up accountability for every shared misbehavior, every conspiracy, every complicity. Knowing perfectly how to dispense judgment for godless rebellion in every category, in every life, every heart, every mind. That's the judgment of God. We talked a bit about this in our new members class this morning. How do you trust a God who can consign human beings to eternal punishment for their rebellion against Him? The answer comes to us from the pages of this book. Our concept of God needs to be great enough, high enough, to recognize that even with those decisions, He is entirely trustworthy. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rebellion against God will be punished meticulously, perfectly, justly. And our wrestling with that question 
is nothing more and nothing beyond wrestling with, our, with the reliability of our understanding of who God is. Is the God who shows Himself to us in Scripture, the God who shows Himself to us in Christ, the God who shows Himself to us through the ministry of His Holy Spirit, is He trustworthy with the eternal destiny of the unconverted in the same way that we trust Him with the eternal destiny of the converted? That's the question we ask. Or is our own respect for our own intellect and reasoning so elevated that God Himself is condemned by our standard of righteousness? That's the dilemma we're in. Do we trust the true and living God who has revealed Himself in the pages of this letter? Or do we trust our own evaluation from our own point of view of where we stand and what we see? That is what makes the difference. That is all wrapped up in the gospel that we embrace by faith. We embrace by faith, a God who is trustworthy with those decisions. Given the remainder of our life with no other distraction, we would not be able to answer the question satisfactorily to anyone who asks it from a position of agnosticism or disbelief. God can. He can answer those people. He demonstrated it in the answer that he gave, for instance, to Job. As Job wrestled with God's justice, and he demonstrated that Job had a limited perspective. Job had a good heart because God had been gracious to him, but he had a limited perspective, and he forgot about that, and God reminded him. We're each being reminded through the pages of this final book of the Bible about who this God is whom we worship and serve and whether He's genuinely trustworthy with the things He has been gracious enough to reveal about Himself or do we take the things that He reveals about Himself and turn them back against Him and charge Him with wrongdoing? That's a question each one of us needs to wrestle with. But we need to recognize what question is actually being asked. Do I trust God's evaluation more of the lines between good and evil and how best to respond, or do I trust my own? That's really the question. Moving on. The final judgment of each such evil that we just mentioned, each such evil that's announced here is, is spelled out in more specific detail a bit later in chapters 19 and 20. But that isn't the focus of this passage here. I mentioned to you that even though we're focusing in on that, that verse 7 and the charge that's there to worship God, the heart of the passage is actually in a different spot, and it's right here in verse 12 of chapter 14. Here's the heart of the text. Here's why we read what we read in chapter 14. We see the main point here, verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And just for the sake of clarity, we might add, finishing to that verse, those who are feeling the wrath of the beast. 
So here's a call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus while feeling the wrath of the beast. This, is an, this announcement is included, John is saying here, as reassurance to the faithful. That's what verse 12 is telling us. We're telling you these things to reassure you in your battle in this world. To whatever degree you're battling the, the beast face to face, eye to eye, or to whatever extent you're out on the edges of the battle and just feeling some of the implications of life in a fallen world, this is written for your encouragement. John is reassuring the faithful here, and this stands at the heart of chapter 14. This is where following the beast will lead, John is saying. It leads to this judgment. This is where it ends for those with the mark of the beast and who honor his name. It ends in eternal judgment. Verse 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Blessing and rest. For the followers of the Lamb stand in contrast to the judgment inherited by the followers of the beast. Here is the destiny of those who remain faithful to the Lamb even while they're feeling the wrath of the beast. Now moving into the final paragraph, verses 14 through 20. Look at verse 14. Starts the, the sixth of these many visions. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Again, there's much debate on how to recognize the person that's in this vision. Whether this is a vision of Jesus or yet another glorious angel, the description surely makes it sound like Jesus, though, doesn't it? One like a son of man with a golden crown coming with the clouds. That's how he was described back in the first chapter. But there's more here before we can decide well. Verse 15, and another angel came out of the temple which is the presence of God, by the way, the throne room, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Some versions say overripe. One thing we see here, the timing is still in God's hands been clearly stated multiple times through this letter, and now it's stated here again. The hour's come for judgment. It's here. Still, this is one of the places where it seems odd that this would be Jesus, because it does seem odd that Jesus would be subject to the command of an angel here to do this reaping work. But I would say perhaps he's not just following a command. Perhaps he's not putting himself in subjection to this angel as much as he's just being informed by a messenger from the Father that now is the hour that's been known only to him up until now. And so is that image that's so challenging from Jesus' sermon on the Mount of Olives about the end times, that the hour is known only to the Father, not even to the Son, 
It may be that we're being ceremoniously shown here that the, the word is going to the Son from the Father. And I tend to think that that's what's going on here. Otherwise, we see these two sequences of judgment here in verses 14 to 20 about the wheat and then the grapes as just being the same telling of the same event twice in a row with two different images. And that, that just doesn't ring true to me. So I do believe that we're seeing two separate descriptions here. First, the reaping of the wheat, which is the righteous, and then the reaping or the gathering of the grapes, the unrighteous. Anyway, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. The timing here is in God's hands. We can see that. But we also see that Jesus is listening to this angel and doing what he has been commanded to do. Also, we can't forget that Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord will descend from heaven with the cry of command and with the voice of an archangel, not just with the sound of the trumpet. So maybe this is the voice that's saying, okay, now. Verse 16, so he who sat on the cloud, whom we believe then at this point to be the returning Jesus, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. He harvested the spiritual wheat, leaving the tares, which here are represented as grapes in the remainder of this paragraph, beginning at verse 17. Let's look at that. Just continue on through here. Then another angel came out of the temple. Six of them, by the way, by the time we're finished here um, with chapter 14. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who has the authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather, this time, the clusters of grapes, the clusters from the vine of the earth. For its grapes are ripe. So I would think this, then, is the gathering of the unrighteous for judgment upon the return of Jesus. Verse 19, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. This is a graphic picture that returns in more detail again over in chapter 19, verses 11 and following. But even here, even here in lesser detail, it's a vivid image. The angel swung his sickle across the earth, gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. You know, traveled to the Middle East and seen the wine presses? It's a hollowed out part of the stone that, it, it is, that, that, that has a little channel that comes out of it that rolls into a place where it can fill a receptacle. So the grapes go into this big stone bowl with with a sort of a hose chiseled into the rock at the bottom, and, and you just, you, tr you tread them, you trot on them, and the grape juice is flowing out through that channel into whatever receptacle is being used to gather it. It's a, it's a gruesome picture here, because here the wine press is an image of God's judgment. It's vivid. 
The wicked are depicted as grapes to be trodden. The juice is their blood. Verse 20. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. That's roughly 184 miles. That's the full length of Israel. This may be the point of reference for this description. It would be equivalent to saying something like, the blood was as high as the horse's bridle throughout the land. But there's also some other ways to understand it. For instance, uh, the square of 40 is 1,600. And 40 is a traditional number of punishment. Think of the wilderness wanderings for 40 years. Or it could be understood as 10 squared times 4 squared. Again, a number that represents completeness using two of those apocalyptic numbers that we identified way back at the beginning, 4 and 10. And if it were either of these latter two, the square of 40 or 10 squared times 4 squared, it would probably be more universal as an image. But I don't think it lacks universal application the way that it's worded here. In this vivid but gruesome and difficult image, there's even a harder point to understand, and that's blood as high as the horse's bridle for that vast space. Whether this is just hyperbole, which I struggle with that word when interpreting Scripture, even though many seem to feel very comfortable using it, it may be a reference to splattering that high throughout that region. That's entirely possible with how it's worded here. But either way, even without nailing down an understanding of this image of how high the blood rose or how to interpret 1600 stadia, it's a vivid and clear idea of what it intended to portray, isn't it? Is anybody struggling to understand what John is describing here? The wicked thrown into the winepress of the fury of God's wrath and trodden out like grapes with their blood spilling out and accumulating vastly. That's hard to say even. Putting before us the question, do we trust the God who has revealed himself in his word? We don't need to take time to reflect on how evil evil can get in this fallen world. Or how long those who have been the victims of evil have asked that very question, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? This communicates with clarity that God is paying attention. Don't mistake his patience for softness on sin. Judgment will so what is our encouragement today 
our takeaway, our transformational intent after walking through a passage like this that just anticipates final salvation and judgment? Well, surely there are at least three things that we can know from this passage that will help us hear and embrace the call for, for endurance there in verse 12 that stands at the heart of this text will help us endure. Three things that are reinforced here, I believe, before we affirm one additional final reassurance after we walk through these three. All right? So three essentially brief lessons that we can draw from this text that will help us endure, and then one final thought about what to do with this text. So, quickly walking through these three. First, as we said, as we move through the section, all things are in God's hands. All things are in God's hands. The hour of judgment has come, verse 7. The hour to reap has come, verse 15. God is in charge of everything that happens in this world, including the timing of its occurrence. We've seen it over and over again, but the letter, the, the text, is making the point over and over again. We're supposed to hear it over and over again. We're going to need it as these days advance. God is in absolute control of all that's taking place, and when it happens, all things are in His hands, and we see it, and we can trust Him. Second, we are all accountable to God. We see that throughout this passage, especially in verse 7 and, and then again in 14 through 20. We are all accountable to God. We can be fully confident of this. We will all answer to Him. Even those among us who don't believe in Him. I've shared that with you before. In a witnessing conversation that was recorded between two people. The question was posed, if you should stand before God in judgment, what would you say to Him about how you've lived your life? And the answer that came back was, I didn't believe in you. How do you think that's going to fare on judgment day? That's a chilling thought, isn't it? To think that we believe that in our belief system, the God of the universe goes into and out of existence so that He only exists as a figment of the imagination of those who have entrusted themselves to Him. And for everyone else, not only will they not answer to Him, He doesn't even exist. If you don't exist in my mind, you don't exist. Wow. I would urge anyone here not to prepare to say that when you stand before God in judgment. You will. We are all accountable to Him, even those among us who don't believe in Him. That's a really important truth to gain from chapter 14. It's not one to state sarcastically or harshly. It's one to state compassionately, mercifully. Sometimes it can feel hard or harsh as you're just trying to pull the roof off and help somebody see the inconsistency of their ideas. But as we communicate this to real people, it needs to be communicated lovingly and sensitively. What you believe about God does not change Him in the slightest, and you will stand before Him in judgment. Third, 
Serving God will not go unrewarded. Serving God will not go unrewarded. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. In Christ, nothing that we do in worship and praise to God will be lost. No one will get to the end of his life wishing he'd given less time to pursuing God. No one will get to the end of his life wishing he had given less effort to obeying God, to loving God and loving people. No one will ever regret the self-denying work that has to go into that pursuit. No one will ever get to the end of his life wishing that he had given less effort to denying himself, denying flesh, denying sin, Denying the desires of the heart. We will never, ever regret the time and attention that it took to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. We will never regret turning from sin to God. Serving God will not go unrewarded. This text makes that abundantly clear. And that leads us right into our final reassurance this morning. The closing charge that I'd like to leave with us today, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and we just quoted it and then sang a version of it right before the sermon this morning. Paul wrote to the Corinthians about the last days and about their surety, their, their, their certain hope in the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus as the first fruits of the promise of our resurrection to come. He even made mention of the last trumpet in that passage in 1 Corinthians 15. As he was heading toward a final reassurance to that body of believers. A closing charge that is much in keeping with verse 13 right here in Revelation 14. It sounds like the same verse written from two different perspectives. There in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul said, therefore, at the end of this long argument about the resurrection, therefore, my beloved brothers, it's that word, brothers and sisters, therefore, beloved church, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You will never regret that. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, knowing. What can we know in this world? Well, we can know this. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. My friends, this is our calling today. This is our calling. It's our final reassurance because it's, it's most certainly true. But it's also our closing charge. It's our, our takeaway from Revelation 14. In fact, it's our guiding principle for every single day of life that our Father allows for us here in this, this sin-saturated world. Regardless of the opposition we face from, from within our own hearts, from the world around us, from the unseen enemies that stand behind both of those, 
Regardless of the opposition we face, this principle will sustain us. It will keep us on course. It will help us live exhibiting the mark of the Lamb. This is what it looks like. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That, my friends, is what it looks like when we fear God and give Him glory. That's what it looks like. When we worship Him who made heaven and earth, this is what it looks like. We give ourselves to His service. Oh, this doesn't come from the strength of our wills. It comes from the grace of God showered upon us when we embrace the Lamb by faith. And then we're enabled to do this even in the face of the beast who's seeking to lead astray the church to defeat her Savior and Lord. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is what it looks like when we fear God and give Him glory, when we worship Him who made heaven and earth. And even so, this is how we enter into the blessedness and the rest that is ours in Him. Pray with me now, and then let's celebrate the gift of of the body and blood of Jesus that has purchased this salvation for us. As I pray, musicians and communion servers, please join me at the front. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the salvation that is ours in him. We thank you for this word about final judgment that though it stretches our minds and hearts and imaginations in strange directions, it forces us to a deepened love and trust in you because we know you're right and good. And now we have to see that work itself out in our hearts as we read your most holy word. Do that work in us, Lord God, I pray. Do that work in this body. Deepen our confidence in the reliability of your truth and of your character that there might be all the greater joy in giving ourselves wholly to the work of the Lord. It's an expression of the faith that you have awakened in our hearts in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.